Hey friends, it's Ashley. Before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about the Patreon, which I hate talking about and I feel like I want to crawl into my sweater, even bringing it up, but it's an important way that this podcast stays alive. Through big and small donations from listeners, we're able to bring you interesting and relevant stories about the coffee world. You can donate anywhere from a dollar a month to $25, and your donations are what keep this whole project going. We're going to be talking about the Patreon a little bit more in the coming weeks. So if you can, please consider donating by going to patreon.com slash If you've benefited at all from this show, especially if you're in a position of power, I urge you to consider making a donation. Okay, now on to the show. Hey friends, this is Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Sometimes you have an idea, and it sparks another idea, and another, and another. And soon you've created something greater than perhaps you could have ever imagined. It ends up touching more people and doing more good than you could have ever hoped for. That's what happened to Ariel Gordon when she started her blog, Trans and Caffeinated. After writing beautiful Instagram captions on her mother's urging, Ariel started a blog and shared her experiences working in the hospitality industry and being openly trans. Since starting her blog, her work has morphed into speaking engagements, and her website will soon host a marketplace for queer and trans artists to display and sell their work which she says she's excited for because it'll be a home that's decidedly for trans artists. Ariel works for Starbucks, and she talks about the importance of signaling that a workplace is a safe space for queer and trans folks to exist. She also advocates for healthcare and in general is just very transparent with her life. I wanted to know about her work and about how coffee shops can be better advocates for trans workers But I also wanted to know what it's like living in public, what it's like to be a media person who shares their life, but still has to work to retain a piece of themselves as they walk through their journey. Ariel is easily one of the most talented writers out there, and you will learn something and be inspired by this episode. Here's Ariel. I went to boarding school in Virginia um, and it was a therapeutic boarding school. So we had therapists who were assigned to us. um, And I went there because I was, I was really, really depressed in high school, mostly uh, due to the fact that I was in, I was a closeted transgender woman. Um, And I decided at this boarding school that I was finally ready to come out. Um, and they, my therapist outed me to my family, uh, told them I was doing it for attention, uh, and basically told them that they should not support that because it would impede my therapeutic progress. Uh, so I went through this really intense trauma surrounding coming out for the first time. So when I got out of that boarding school, I graduated high school, I wanted to find a space where I could come out, I could be myself and not have to worry that anybody would judge me or, um, do anything that, that harmful to me the second time I came out. Uh, so I started researching online 
and I looked up trans-affirming employers, and the first two companies that came up were Starbucks and Trader Joe's, uh, and I applied to both of them, uh, and I ended up with Starbucks. I had an interview a few days later, um, and the environment really did prove to be like what I hoped it would be. I came out uh, to a couple coworkers a couple months into working there, um, and they were super supportive, and it was the first place I really felt like I had like a group of people that supported me in my identity and that made it a home and that drew me further into the Starbucks world. And then through that, I really started to love coffee. That's, that's really like powerful that you like specifically searched for trans affirming workspaces and then found Starbucks and really coffee through that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about like your journey through Starbucks? Yeah. Um, so I started working for Starbucks in New Jersey, uh, while I was still living with my mom in Bergen County and, uh, transferred stores, uh, when I came out as trans, because I felt like just having a new space, uh, to exist without people that knew me, as a male presenting person, it would make it a lot more comfortable for me to just have to exist without answering a million questions and without having to deal with people that were transphobic. Um, and so I ended up like transferring a couple of times in the next few years. Uh, as I fell more in love with coffee, I uh, got involved with Starbucks Reserve uh, at a reserve store in New Jersey. Uh, then as soon as the Starbucks Reserve Roastery was opening in New York, I reached out to a couple people. I talked to my district manager. And I ended up moving to Brooklyn uh, about two years ago to work at the Starbucks Reserve Roastery in Manhattan. Um, was there for about a year and kind of started to feel like I wanted to take a step back once my writing uh, started really taking off uh, about last summer. Um, and take a step back, not meaning like in the job role, but I um, we had this new opportunity for a smaller reserve store that was just a, a little, a bit of a smaller production, a bit less um, intense day to day. And that felt like it fit a lot better with what I was doing with my work. Um, and so about four months ago, I transferred to a reserve store that we've been training for, for the past uh, couple months. And that's where we are now. <laughs> and that's where you're at. Uh, you were in Chicago for a month opening. Yeah the wildest store I've ever seen from the outside only oh because God. I've never been inside. Can you give people uh, like a sneak peek or like a little <laughs> taste of what it's like to be in the biggest, is it the biggest in the world? It is. Yeah, it is. Chicago is the biggest roastery in the world, uh, biggest Starbucks in the world. Uh, that was a, so basically we came in one day uh, to work. We were training for our new store um, we found out that the store wasn't opening uh, on the date we thought it was. And so suddenly we had like more time to train, which was super cool. Um, but then at the same time, the Chicago store opened and suddenly they had an opportunity to have a couple more like people working there who were fully trained in working at a roastery because our store wasn't opening. We had this sort of like free time. Um, so we went... Uh, to a meeting on a Thursday morning where they were like, Hey, do you want to go to Chicago t tomorrow? And then somehow we said, yes. Um, I said, yes. <laughs> 24 hours later, I was on a plane to Chicago, um, helping 
support the opening of the biggest Starbucks in the world. Um, it was, the energy was electric there. I mean, it's, it's so different from New York, uh, Chicago as a whole. And that kind of translates to like the energy at the roastery, like Midwesterners, even in Chicago have a very, very like calm, warming, welcoming presence. Um, and that was kind of the first thing I noticed about like being in Chicago, being in the roastery there. Um, but then juxtapose, juxtapose that, that calming, warm presence with the electric energy of a roastery. And you get a really interesting dynamic in that story. That it kind of, it kind of draws you in. Like I, I love going to work there. I love seeing the people there. I was there a month and I got so close with some people closer than I thought I would. And, you know, cried when I left because it was such a powerful experience, like being in that space with those incredible people. That's amazing. I really wish that I had been able to catch you while you were here. I, I think I caught you like the day after you left. You caught me. I was in O'Hare Airport and I got a message from you. And that was when I realized that you were Chicago based. I didn't, I, I guess somehow I'd forgotten that the whole time I was there. The talking to you made me realize that nowhere on my social media do I say where I live. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that might be helpful. So I finally put, I think I put a little blurb at the end of my Instagram account that says Chicago, <laughs> um, but based on that conversation, cause I was like, oh, I need to maybe let people know that this is where I'm at. Cause I, you're not the first person who's been like, oh, this is where you live. And I'm like, <laughs> man, I'm really in stealth mode, aren't I? That's so funny. Um, so I want to go back to um, the moment where you were looking for a job that was trans-affirming, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about both what that search was like and also what it is for like a company to signal something like that um, in a very open and transparent way. Yeah, I mean, so um, that search was... I would heard that Starbucks was really affirming for a while, so like I kind of, when I saw... Starbucks on the list, I was not the least bit surprised. Um, but it, it it's it means it says to me as a transgender person, you are welcome here. We will protect you. That we have guidelines to protect you and to, for a company for a company to have a reputation for being trans affirming means that enough people feel that they are actually living up to those promises for it to be on the internet, for people to have written reviews of Starbucks saying that they're trans affirming. Like it, it is a powerful thing to see people reviewing a company and saying that it supports LGBTQ people and specifically that it supports trans people. Um, and for me, that gave me so much security that I wasn't going to go into a hostile environment and get somewhere, come out and finally try to live my truth for a second time and then be told like, oh, we don't accept you here. Um, and it, and that is even more true for people that live in states like Oklahoma or parts of Texas, um, where it is just common, it's a common understanding that Starbucks is basically the only, only place people can work in town where they won't be fired for being transgender because it's still legal in 29 states to fire or harass someone at work for being transgender. Um, so to have a company that's really taking a stand, that's really saying like, you're welcome here. It not just gives us like a place you can be safe at work. It gives us a place where we actually, in some cases we can find work. Um, and it's just so powerful. 
What has that been like? I mean, obviously there are things, there are a lot of people, like you said, who have commented on the internet and publicly that Starbucks is a trans affirming place, but what did that look like in practice? Like what were the first couple of days like knowing that that was something that was a priority for you? Um, I started to feel people out right away. So I started like, I, I was out as kind of queer at that time. Like I was always read as femme. So people knew that I wasn't a straight boy. Um, so I started to feel out people's feelings on the LGBT community. Um, I found out that a bunch of people in my store were queer. Um, no one else was trans, but at least I knew that if, if there was some acceptance in the store that hopefully like they would also accept trans people. Um, and then like slowly, once I started feeling more comfortable with that, I started actually coming out to people. Um, and they were so accepting and so protective. And even my manager like pulled me aside and said, you know, I may not know everything you experience, but let me support you. I will make sure that you feel safe for being who you are. Um, and hearing that from someone who like has the power to actually protect you in that way, um, it was so important for me to to hear that from my peers, to hear that from my boss. Yeah, I can imagine in any identity where, mar- where, where you might be discriminated against, especially by customers, it's really important to hear from a leader yeah. saying, like, I am here to protect you. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it played out in practice, too. Like, whenever, you know, if I'd be on the drive through window and I'd be getting misgendered and I, I needed to be off, people would be supportive of that. Um, if I had an interaction that they knew I just did not have the emotional energy to handle, like if I was, you know, a customer was calling me a boy or calling me he or using my, my birth name, which a lot of them knew in my first store, um, I knew people would actually step in and make sure that I didn't have to bear that emotional burden. I feel like that moment should sit just for a second because I feel like the argument that most managers or people in leadership have to hearing, you know, stories of needing to protect their employees and then being like, well, I can't do that. Or like the customer is always right or, you know, et cetera, any like list of excuses, but it's like, no, if Starbucks can do it, you can do it. Well, and the customer can... You, you can make the customer feel that they are right without pushing your employees by the wayside. You don't have to, managers don't have to ignore what their employees need in order to make customers feel like they're being taken care of. It's not an either or, like you have, there are ways, A, I mean, there are times when you like, you do have to remove a customer from the environment. Um, I was fortunate that I didn't have any situations where that was really the case, Um but outside of like that extreme, there are ways to make a customer feel like they had a good visit while also making sure that someone is not being discriminated against on your team and getting them out of harm's way. Do you have any examples of that? Because I feel like that distinction is really important, but I feel like a lot of people will still see it as an either or situation where they have to choose between their employees and their customers. But I think you're absolutely spot on to indicate that it's not it's not an either or. Um, are you asking real life examples or like what would be an example of that? If you have a real life example, I'd love to hear it. But if you also have like a, maybe like, like a thought experiment that would work too, but it depends on like what you want to share. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I can't conjure like a example right now of when that happened. Um, but for me, that would be say, okay, so, so say I'm behind the bar and someone starts misgendering me. And, you know, even when I try to explain my gender, they continue to misgender me. Um, but what they really want is, you know, their drink to be remade. And in doing so, they are harassing me. Um, a way to de-escalate that situation for a manager would be to come in and take care of that situation yourself because like your employees are your customers. You are there to take care of your people. And if there is a situation where they can't take care of the customer, you step in and make sure that everyone gets what they need to have that safe place. Um, And so in that situation, the manager could come in, remake the drink and just help make sure that the employee that is being harassed gets safe in the back of the house or removes them from the situation in a way that the customer doesn't even notice. Um, just putting the employee's needs first instead of focusing solely on meeting the customer's needs. I love that you use the word de-escalation in that instance, because I think yeah. that's, that's something that we don't really talk about a lot in terms of conflict no. between customers and employees. The idea that like we as leaders, I'm just using the royal we, I suppose, uh, yeah. but we as leaders have a lot of power to just like assess what a person actually wants in the situation and bring the energy back down as opposed to like heightening yeah. it or making these snap decisions that feel like I have to choose one thing or the other. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about how Starbucks has been uh, affirming kind of in like practice in these like very real moments between leaders and customers. But one of the big reasons um, or one of the big things that Starbucks is really great at is healthcare uh, for yes. employees. Cause, so could you talk a little bit about what like healthcare has kind of like looked like for you and why it's been important in your life? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, so healthcare is obviously this big thing that we talk about our industry in general, like so many shops don't offer healthcare to the employees, which is problematic for pretty much, I, I'd say everyone who doesn't have healthcare, it, it, it's an issue that they're dealing with. And that may be a sweeping generalization, but like healthcare allows us to be healthy. Healthcare helps us to live. Um, and so many employers don't offer healthcare to hourly employees, uh, especially within the coffee industry is a huge problem. And for transgender people, there are so many, for those of us who wish to undergo medical transition, so many steps we need to take that can be covered by insurance. Um, But for many people that work in the coffee industry, we don't have that to cover those expenses like bottom surgery, um, like top surgery if, uh, for trans mass people wanting to remove their breasts or uh, trans feminine people wanting breast augmentation. A lot of people working in coffee don't have access to that. And Starbucks actually takes it one step further. Uh, so a couple of years ago, about two years ago now, they launched what they call their supplemental health insurance plan, which not only makes sure that all of the medical procedures that I have done are covered under my insurance, but also make Starbucks the only employer to cover procedures that are transition related that are considered by other insurance companies to be cosmetic. So for instance, uh, many trans women who choose to have bottom surgery have to have electrolysis 
um, in the gro- in their groin. Like I, I've been having to have electrolysis recently to get rid of hair so that after bottom surgery, that hair does not become internal. Um, Starbucks is the only employer that doesn't consider that hair removal to be cosmetic. The same with facial hair removal. I was able to get uh, laser hair removal on my face covered by my employer. And to my knowledge, not just within the coffee industry, but I don't know of any company in the US that covers those procedures. And this 100% cover to get 100% reimbursed for those payments. And that has been life-changing for me. Before that, I couldn't afford hair removal. I would not have been able to afford bottom surgery because of the sometimes like $11,000 that some trans women dish out for um, pre-bottom surgery electrolysis. I don't have that. And I, I doubt, especially most people who work in coffee, like we don't have that as dis- disposable income that we can use for our medical needs. Right. And as you just stated, like these are not like drops in like the flash in the pan, like a couple hundred dollars. Like these are thousands of dollars worth of medical procedures or things that are necessary to have a medical procedure. And like, I can't even imagine what $11,000 would look like for a barista making $10 an hour. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not drops in the bucket. Like you're saying it is huge amounts of money. And that 11000 is just for pre-bottom surgery electrolysis. That doesn't even take into account all of the other surgical costs, all of the other hair removal costs for facial hair removal, for um, transmasculine people, for like nipple reconstruction after top surgery that many insurances do not cover, uh, but Starbucks insurance does. That doesn't take any of that into account. Right. Something that you've been really kind of wonderful at is being really open about your, just like your journey. Like I thinking about what you were talking about with electrolysis. I'm like, Oh, that's right. I saw that on your Instagram stories. Um, (laughs) So, um, and I want to talk about that in a moment, but I want to go back. uh, Like at what point did you start to translate what was happening to you in terms of like, I want to write about this or I want to share my story. When did uh, your, like your writing career kind of like kick into gear? Um, so it, it took off slowly. Uh, when I first came out, I just wanted to do everything I could to be read as cisgender. I didn't want anyone to ever know I was trans. I was so scared of people thinking that I'm trans and being afraid of me or harassing me that I just wanted to people to see me as cisgender. Um, And about eight months into my transition, I started to be read as female. And I was super comfortable with that first until I wasn't. And it took me a while to really understand why that made me so uncomfortable. And I realized it was because in hiding behind the fact that I could go about my day being read as cisgender, I was allowing a part of my identity to be erased that like, had been such an important part of my existence for my entire life. Like I just had spent 20 years trying to be this identity, trying to come out as transgender, trying to find out who I was just to let it be erased. Uh, So slowly I started being more open, sharing more things on social media. I started with like Facebook and then on Instagram and started talking about little things and, uh, you know, like starting to feel about being empowered in makeup, starting to talk about 
how I felt when I wear a dress, like started out as like Instagram captions, uh, but my mom would read them. And every single time I posted any sort of like colorful, well-worded caption that my mom really liked on social media, she would say, Ariel, Ariel, like you write so beautifully. Why don't you start a blog? So that went on for like, I don't know, two years, at least (laughs) three years probably. And at a certain point I had written this post. um, This was right before I was going for my first consultation for bottom surgery. I wrote this post. Um, that I was going to caption on Instagram, congrats on the new, on the new vagina. Um, I just thought it was witty. And so I, I wrote this caption and it like just, I just kept going. And I was like, okay, this is not going to fit on Instagram. Like what do, <laughs> what do I, what do I do with this material? I just wrote like, I want to put this out into the world, but I want to, I want to put it out, put out the whole thing. I want people to read this. Um, so I was talking to my mom about this and she was like, why don't you start a vlog? <laughs> She's like, this is what I've been saying. <laughs> yeah, literally that was, uh, and she, she never misses an opportunity to remind me now of like that. She was saying this all along is so cute. Um, but so I, I, yeah, so I wrote that post um, and I like started to research how to start a blog. Um, and then I put it out there and it got like, it got like, I think 700 views in like a couple of days um, from like friends and my friend sharing it with friends. Um, and then I just kept writing and then I kept writing more and I kept feeling like I had things I wanted to say that I wanted to put out into the world. Um, and I really just, I, I was really inspired by the way people responded of the way people like interacted, the way people seemed to connect with what I had to say. Um, and now it's kind of exploded into speaking gigs uh, that I'm going to soon. And uh, I just filmed a video this morning uh, titled Dear Dysphoria, where I that I'm going to probably try to submit to film festivals. Um, and now I'm like reimagining my blog and trying to figure out like how to incorporate a web shop into it. Um, and it's just kind of exploded. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that you have this web shop component that you're thinking about because one of the things that um, that really was touching was to see this idea of creating like a trans community almost online. Like, let's bring mm-hmm. other artists, let's bring people creating things all together. Um, and one of the posts that you wrote was the power of a trans community. So I was wondering if you could yeah. talk a little bit about that and what like what drove you to to think more about the like the community aspect. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so I, I worked for uh, GLAAD for a period of time, which deals with media advocacy work. Uh, so while I was there, I, I was it was also while I was working at Starbucks, I started to really appreciate the way that media representation can shape our concepts of ourselves. Um, and so as I started thinking about what I learned at GLAAD through the context of my blog, I was like, there are all of these kids who are like now starting to see themselves represented uh, in media, in art, on TV, in magazines, um, but it's still really limited. And even when it's presented, um, for instance, the first time that I saw a trans person represented in any form of media or art, it was a transgender character that was both played by and written by a, by cisgender people who because they were cisgender, really didn't understand trans experience. Uh, 
the way that a transgender person would just naturally. Um, so as I started thinking about those ideas in the context of the work I wanted to do with spreading acceptance for transgender people, our community on my blog, I started thinking about how many artist friends I had that were trans that were trying to like share this piece of their experience through their work um, that I, I felt like more people needed to hear. Um, to me, like sharing art, sharing media, not only supports young trans kids who consume this art, this media, but it also helps to bridge the gap between cisgender consumers and trans creators in a way that's often really difficult. Even when I write, I find that the people that most of the people that are really, really engaged are other trans people. Um, so this web shop to me, having artists sell their art online, um, while having it known by everyone who buys those pieces that the artists are retaining 100% of the profits that they make felt like a powerful and important way to do that. Um, and in while this whole uh, reinvention of my blog is going on, like while this, this page is being redesigned, it felt like kind of the perfect time to introduce that idea. Um, and over the past week or so, like things have started to fall into place and it just, it just kind of feels right. I think there's some, there's some really powerful things you just said in that last statement. So like the idea of media representation and other young trans kids seeing themselves depicted in media by people who are not cisgendered. Um, but then there's also like a component where, and I think about this a lot, the idea that like, sometimes you're kind of speaking to the choir, like, is my media only being consumed by people who are like me? And is that the point? So how do I bridge that gap? So I think it's really powerful that you thought really constructively about like, how do I make this thing, something that is consumable to everybody in a very intentional manner? Like there's no getting around Mm -hmm. it. Like you're, you're buying art from trans artists. Yeah. Like, like how did you, I mean, I'm like a, a little like, flabbergasted by how impressed I am by that. Like, so how do you think about, yeah, it's just, it's just so like, it's so hard to put your stuff out there in a way that feels like you're not just saying the same shit to the same people every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, do you think, I mean, you obviously think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, right before Chicago, I went into a little bit of a writing slump. Um, And then kind of started to think of like how I could vary my content to make it so that I didn't always necessarily have to be writing, but was still putting good out into the world, was still helping educate people, was still helping to bridge that gap between cisgender and transgender people. Um, And I'd like to say that like it was an idea that I like really brainstormed and like tweaked and retweaked, um, but kind of, it kind of just came to me. Like when the idea came, like when that clicked, it it clicked and it it made sense. Um, right. And I just went with it. Right. Cause it's not, I, I'd imagine like the intention wasn't always to just like bridge this gap. Cause that's like also not your job either. Um, it really is like, if you choose it to be like, you can do whatever, but like, I can imagine that the idea comes and you're like, oh wait, it works on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The more I started to think it through, the more I started to think of 
all of the things that I, I could do with this as I continued to roll it out. Right. How do you, how do you balance like this idea of living like a very public life in certain ways? Like you share a lot about yourself and, you know, going to electrolysis and like the things that are like affect you day to day, but at the same time, like retain some of that like essence of self for you. Uh, it's been really hard. I mean, for the past, especially the year, but even three years, like I, there are times when I felt like, the focus of my existence is being trans. Um, and in a lot of ways that that's sometimes true because it is such a pivotal, crucial part of my existence that it is easy to be absorbed in that sometimes. Um, but in a lot of ways, my, my day-to-day kind of pulls me out of that. Like, you know, at Starbucks, I'm a supervisor. Um, with my friends, I'm like the person that cooks. I'm the person that hosts. And like in those instances, I'm not just like, the trans educator, I'm a person, I'm a friend, I'm a boss, I'm all of these other things. Um, and even though in those instances, instances, I'm still transgender, like it helps me to maintain a sense of identity outside of that. Um, but in my days off when I'm, when I'm really in it, when I'm really writing, it's, it's really easy to feel like that is the thing. Like that is my whole, like the only thing that is important about my days is putting that content out in the world. And it's not. And I find myself constantly having to remind myself of that. I can imagine that's hard though. It can, it can definitely be really difficult. Um, especially when I feel like I'm not creating to my full potential or especially when a piece takes me a really long time and I feel like I've spent all of my time, you know, one week doing the same piece, rewriting the same piece. Like I currently have, five pieces that I've written that are like three quarters of the way done. Cause I didn't feel like I can complete them. Um, and the weeks that I'm really stuck on those are harder. Um, cause it feels like there's a piece of me that's not being fulfilled. Um, but then there are other weeks where I feel really inspired and I'm writing and I'm able to kind of step away from that and not have to be always thinking about what's next, what I'm doing on my blog later today. Um, and on those days it's a little easier, uh, to disconnect from that. And to just be a person. Yeah. I, I have to say as a person who also writes and does media, that's probably my biggest struggle is never feeling like I'm done. Yeah. It, it never does feel done. And and I um, I think we had talked about that, that concept too. Like when is the work done? Um, and I don't really think that it's in our lifetimes. I think these are like trans visibility and representation is an ongoing thing that in reality, we are not going to have perfect equity for all trans people across every space in my lifetime, even though that is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is for us to be treated like any other person and have all the same opportunities as any other person. And I don't think my work in that will ever be done, but there will be a point in which like I have added what I can to this conversation. Um, and maybe at that point, if I feel like I've added everything I can, then that'll be time to step away from it. Um, but I can't see that happening at any time soon, especially while this fight is still like people are still fighting back 
against us in so many states in Iowa. They just rolled back workplace protections for transgender people, meaning that the places you can be fired for being trans would go from 29 back up to 30. Um, a lot of these places, like our rights are not going forward. They're going backwards. So I can't really see a day in which I feel like there's not more that I can add to this. Does it ever feel like futile sometimes to be like, I'm embarking on a journey that is both important. I need to be here for it, but will I will never see the end of. Yes and no, because I've seen progress in so many small ways uh, that it reminds me that even if I'm not, if my work or the work of other trans activists at this time is not necessarily bringing us to our end goal right now, there are there are small changes and some big changes to be celebrated. Um, you know, like I have a friend who, after my mother wrote a guest post from my blog, showed it to his mom and she finally started understanding her son's trans identity. She saw another parent who had initially struggled with the identity of their child and then come to love her that meaning my mom learning to love and appreciate me for my trans identity um, in such an authentic way. And she really connected with that and has come a long way since reading that and has had an impact. And like, when I see those small changes, it reminds me that even though the work isn't done, it doesn't mean it's not important. You mentioned obviously this story, which is super impactful, but I wonder where else you find joy or what, what are the moments that feel really affirming to you? Um, I mean, I always feel empowered when people say that my piece touched them in some specific way, that it resonated with them, that it made them feel something or think about something in a way they hadn't thought about it before. Like those are the moments that I'm like, yes, I accomplished through this, what I really wanted to accomplish through this piece. Um, and I feel like the more I get my blog, my work out there, the more that will happen. Um, and those are, those are the small moments when it it really does feel important. It makes me feel like what I do matters. Um, just to kind of, I guess not wrap everything up, but to kind of like put a bow on this conversation, if you will, um, (laughs) Um, where do you want to see like discourse go next? Like what's the thing that you think that you'd like to see more people talking about that, like isn't getting visibility yet, or maybe isn't visible to everybody yet? Um, I want to see workplaces adapting significantly to incorporate, to, to better support trans employees. Um, you know, I want, I want to see companies discussing having people introduced with their, like I want to see companies introducing the idea that people can feel empowered to introduce themselves with their pronouns or um, ask people's pronouns when they meet them or set like a precedent by making presentations. And on your presenter side, you have like Ariel Gordon, she or they pronouns. Um, I want to see companies really think deeply about what they can better do to make their trans employees feel protected against harassment, uh, not just by people who work for the company, but, you know, in the service industry, make them feel protected by customers. I want all 
different spaces to be having this discussion because so much of our lives is taken up by work. And especially for those of us that like work in the service industry, there's so many people that we come across every day. Um, And if those people that we work with are thinking about how better to support and affirm the community, uh, it'll be just a safer world for trans people. Ariel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you so much for chatting. Boss Barista is made by me, Ashley Rodriguez, in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading design studio, editorial platform, and podcast examining all the ways we look at the things that we eat and drink. You can check out more at goodbeerhunting.com. Seriously, their stories are incredible. My favorite series right now is the Humanity and Hospitality series that they've been running for the past couple of months, examining different ways that we look at people in the service industry. Special thanks to Jesse Raub and Jordan Stalling. Also special thanks to our music contributors, the band Lost in the Sun. You've made this podcast sound incredible. I'm just looking for a better day.